0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, and welcome everybody to today's program at the Commonwealth Club. The club can be found on the internet at CommonwealthClub.org. My name is Cheryl Davis, and I am Executive Director of the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. It is an honor to be back here at the Commonwealth Club to discuss this very important new book by Jerry Mitchell, Race Against Time, about Jerry's efforts to investigate several unsolved cases of the civil rights era. Jerry was a longtime investigative reporter of the Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi. He is a recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship and has won a host of journalistic honors, including the George Polk Award and the Sidney Hillman Prize. Mitchell has also been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. In 2018, he founded the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. Jerry, welcome to the Commonwealth Club and to the Bay Area. Please welcome, Jerry.
1: Thank you. Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for coming and uh, glad to be here. Some of my earliest childhood memories. My dad was in the Navy. So actually some of my earliest childhood memories are are right here. I remember almost uh, freezing to death at uh, <laughs> Candlestick Park. I think I was like four years old. We went to July baseball games. <laughs> and so I, I every time I hear that Mark Twain quote, I think of it. The coldest winter I ever spent was the summer in San Francisco. So you guys already know about that. Um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't know if you're like me, but if someone tells me I can't have something, I want it like a million times worse. Anybody <laughs> else like that? I don't and, um, so there was something in Mississippi called the Mississippi sovereignty commission, which was a kind of like the state equivalent of the white citizens council. If you ever, if you know what I'm talking about, which was, it was basically, um, were very nefarious you know, state agency headed by the governor. It had a propaganda arm where they would send white and black speakers up North and talk about how wonderful segregation was. And yeah, they really did. And then they, um, and then they had the spy arm where they would infiltrate civil rights groups and do these spy reports. And so the number of files, uh, of the, of the agency totaled, um, more than, um, 132,000 pages and so the Mississippi legislature when they officially finally did away with the agency in 1977 sealed all those records for 50 years so when I found that out that they sealed them for 50 years my first thought was well there's got to be something in there right you know And so I began to develop sources who had access to the files, began to leak me the files. And what they show is the same time the state of Mississippi was prosecuting Byron D. LeBeckwith, the guy in handcuffs for the murder of Meg Revers. This other arm of the state, the sovereignty commission was secretly assisting in defense, trying to get back with acquitted. Nobody knew that. Um, so anyway, uh, to tell a tiny bit more about Meg Revers, Meg Revers was a war two veteran fought in Normandy, returned home to, you know, from fighting the Nazis to fighting racism all over again in the form of Jim Crow that barred African-Americans from restaurants, restrooms, uh, voting booths. Um, On the same night that president Kennedy told the nation that the grandsons of slaves were still not free. Meg was shot in the back of his own driveway in Jackson, Mississippi and his wife and children you know, ran outside when they heard the shot and saw the blood and screamed. Um, so my story ran October 1st, 1989, about this case. A- at the time that it ran, the odds were literally more than a million and one against the case ever being reopened and reprosecuted. There was no murder weapon anymore or any other kind of evidence of available. There was no transcript, nothing in the court files of any kind of value. But Murley Evers, the widow of Meg Evers, believed and she prayed and some amazing things happened. A couple of months later, Jackson police are cleaning out a closet, having to find a box that contained the crime scene photographs of the killing of Meg Evers, including the fingerprint of Byron D. Beckwith lifted from the murder weapon. A few months after that, Murley ever shared with me her copy of the court transcript that she saved in a safety deposit box. And a few months after that, the prosecutor in the case found the murder weapon in his father-in-law's closet, which sounds like I'm making it up, right?
0: <laughs>
1: this is why I write nonfiction. You know, you, it's often more unbelievable than fiction. Um, so I went to interview uh, Byron D. Lubeck with. You, you can probably guess how I found his house. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, true. It was, it was waving outside. I didn't have a problem finding his house. And, uh, so I went and talked to him about, for about six hours, and absolutely the most racist person I ever spent serious time with. inward word this, inward word that. Then he started in on other non white races. And then, uh, and then he was very anti Semitic on top of this. He was a part of Christian identity. And I don't have time to explain Christian identity here, but, google it (laughs) really horribly racist you know religion um so anyway i went to interview him spent six hours he denied that he killed meager evers but you know you know how when you get done talking to some people you feel like you need to go like take a bath or something you know that's the way i felt you know and so it was getting dark and i thought it would probably be a good time to go and uh he insists on, like, walking me out to his car, on my car. And I'm like, that's okay. I, you know, I think I can find my way. So he walks me out to my car anyway and gets me out there and says, if you write positive things about white Caucasian Christians, God will bless you. If you write negative things about white Caucasian Christians, God will punish you. If God does not punish you directly, several individuals will do it for him. And so his wife had made me a sandwich i think you can guess what i did with the sandwich so byron deal back with um at, at this moment in time that i'm you know that i'm talking to him um yeah, he you know when i first talked to him he didn't realize i was the one that wrote the story that got the case reopened he got indicted in december of 1990 extradited back to mississippi by this point he figured it out and so he saw me across the courtroom he goes you see that boy over there When he dies, he's going to Africa. (laughs) I turned to my friend and went, you know, I've always wanted to go to Africa. (laughs) So Byron D. LeBeck was convicted on February 5th, 1994, in the exact same courtroom where he had been tried 30 years earlier, almost to the day. And when the word guilty rang out, you could hear the waves of joy as they cascaded down the hall till they reached a foyer full of people, black and white, just erupted in cheers. And Merle Everson and her daughter, Rena, cheered as well. And I just felt chills because the impossible had suddenly become possible. Not too long after Byron DeLeBeck was indicted, I met with this woman. Her name's Ellie Damer, And uh, we'll probably get to talk about Ellie Dahmer uh, a little bit. But an incredible woman. Uh, but her husband Vernon Damer was was basically died defending their family from a Klan attack. Um, but he was a farmer, businessman, entrepreneur, uh, and NAACP leader. He believed that once voting rights truly came to African Americans, that that would change Mississippi and the nation. And he was right. But the Klan didn't like his involvement in this. They attacked him in the middle of the night, January 10, 1966, set their house on fire, began firing their guns into the house. Vernon Dahmer woke up, grabbed his shotgun, fired back at the Klansmen so his family could escape safely out a back window. Unfortunately, the flames of the fire seared his lungs and he died later that day. A few weeks later in the mail came his voter registration card. He fought his whole life for the right of all Americans mm-hmm. to be able to vote, but never been able to cast a ballot himself. Vernon Damer had uh, seven sons, six of whom served a total of 78 years in our armed forces, and four were serving in the military at that time. And um, and this is what they returned home to find. It's a, to me, it's one of the most moving photographs, ho- horrible moving photographs of the... Uh, Civil rights movement. In fact, a little bit of trivia about this photograph. It was taken by Chris McNair, who is the father of Denise McNair, who is one of the four little girls that was killed in the Birmingham church bombing. The guy who ordered the killing was uh, the attack on Vernon Damer's family. It was this guy. His name was Sam Bowers, head of the White Knights of the KKK in Mississippi, responsible for at least 10 killings in Mississippi. He had been prosecuted in the, in the Damer case but never been convicted. So, um, Anyway, not too long after the Damer family met with me met with the district attorney, district attorney acted interested, but then kind of quickly lost interest. So um, then another district attorney came in and he seemed to care even less. And I'm literally in Ohio again. My master's when I get this telephone call, um, I was at Ohio State and this guy said. He had information on the Damer case and wanted to meet with me. So I flew back to Mississippi, met with him, and it turned out he had helped work for Sam Bowers, like he was a kid at the time, but worked for Sam Bowers and actually heard Bowers give the orders to kill Vernon Damer. So he came forward, met with us, and with the attorney's office. The case got reopened in earnest. The guy that, that was kind of the key witness back in the 1960s was this guy. His name was Bill Roy Pitts. Billeroy Pitts was involved in the killing of Vernon Damer, got caught, dropped his gun, um, you know, well, dropped his gun, got caught, plea guilty in murder, got a life sentence for that, and then plea guilty federal charges and got five years for that. So I was just kind of g- coming behind that. I couldn't find a record of his state time, what I told was he was in a federal witness protection program. And then I found out um, you know, I was trying to find out about his federal sentence. How much time do you actually do? I know what his actual his sentence was, but how much time do you actually do? So I'm talking to the Federal Bureau of Prisons and Archivists there, and I said, how much time did he actually serve? And she said, three and a half years. And said, so I understand he left federal prison and went to the witness protection program. And she said, that's impossible. I mean, what are you talking about? And so there was no federal witness protection program back then. So what this meant was Billy Rapitza never served a single day of his life sentence. Kind of a big oversight, right? So I didn't know if he's alive, if he's dead, where he was. So um, I, uh, anyway, I. Went on the internet, you know, this is relatively early days of the internet and kind of took my chances because I didn't have a city or a state, and up it popped. Bill Ray Pitts had his address, Dem Springs, Louisiana has telephone number. So I called him. First twenty minutes of the conversation went like this. How'd you find me? How'd you find me? I'm like, It's on the internet. <laughs> the internet, I gotta list the telephone number. I'm like, I guess you have to take it up with them. So the result of my story that he had never served a single day of his life since Mississippi authorities issued a warrant for his arrest. He didn't like that. In fact, he ran. And While he was on the run, he sent me this audio cassette, and when it began, this is how it began when I got it, played it. Jerry, I just thought I'd let you know you've ruined my life. Oh. But I promise, if i talk to anybody, i talk to you. So here's this tape. And on this tape, proceeds to tell me all his involvement in killing Vernon Damarov, his involvement of the Klan violence. So shortly after this, he, he turned himself into authorities. And this leads to the arrest of Sam Bowers. And this is now May of 1998. Also arrested with Sam Bowers was his right-hand guy. His name is Devers Nix. And when the family brought Devers Nix in, it was like the most pitiful sight you've ever seen. They wheeled him in the wheelchair with the oxygen tank and he and they wheel him up in front of the judge and he's like i can't take more than a couple steps without needing oxygen judge say well judge is like well i normally don't do this but i'm gonna let you out without bond a dozen days later this is like a reporter's dream this is where we caught him (laughs) so he got arrested (laughs) yeah he loved me um so fast forward now, Bowers goes on trial, and guess who's there to testify to his behalf? But Devers Nix. And so um, so this is a tricky situation. Obviously, he can take his fifth member right against self-incrimination anytime. And his lawyer uh, was a really good criminal defense lawyer uh, in the 1960s. But by now, he's in his 80s, and that's great. But the other detail I guess I should mention, I don't mean any of this cruelly, uh, is they actually brought him from the nursing home <laughs> to the courtroom and so he's talking to Devers and he's trying to work out this signaling system in case he needs to take the fifth you know, claim the fifth he's like, now Devers, if you need to take the fifth I'm going to raise my hand Devers, okay, okay so Devers gets up he starts testifying to look over his lawyer about five minutes later you can probably guess this part <laughs> So Devers kept right on testifying. <laughs> yeah, I was in the Klan. You know, like so tried to put a positive spin on it, like there is one. You know, while well, the Klan was a benevolent organization, passing out fruit baskets to the needy at Christmas. And under cross examination, prosecutor said, "Just how many fruit baskets did you pass out?" He says, "Oh, sad to say." No, it's the funniest trial I ever covered in my life as a reporter. Deadly, serious matter but funny trial. Yeah. Sam Bowers was represented by this guy. His name is Travis Buckley, who was involved in uh, the killing. Oh, I say he's involved in the killing. He was charged at one point in the killing. It was, he was not just a lawyer for the Klan. He was also a leader in the Klan. Okay. He was actually charged with the killing. So um, at one point. So uh, the prosecution is kind of laying out their case and says, you know they're questioning Billy Roy Pitts who always at the planning meeting that took place prior to the attack and Pitts is like I was there Sam Bowers was there Devers Nix was there Travis Buckley was there and now I'm looking at Travis Buckley and no reaction you know what I mean and so then the court reporter is like now now what were those names again (laughs) remember this is the south we have to ask these things was uh, so like Billy rope Pitts was there. Sam Bowers was there. Devers Nix was there. Travis Buckley was there. Now Buckley woke up. <laughs> he jumps up. Objection, your honor. <laughs> yeah, I've covered a lot of trials in my life. Is the only trial I ever covered where a witness implicated the defense lawyer himself in the case. <laughs> so Sam Bowers was convicted on August 21st, 1998. And since the life in prison, just like Beckwith, the unfortunate part is that the the hate that caused this, right? Has never really gone away, right? Um, just five years ago, young man entered this church in Charleston and killed these nine beautiful people, right? Two years ago in Pittsburgh, a man walked into this synagogue and killed 11 people. He said he was trying to destroy all the Jews. And then this in El Paso just a year ago where a man drove all the way from Dallas, Texas to El Paso. And you're like me and you've driven across Texas. You know, it's a long ways. He drove all that way to El Paso and killed 22 people and, and injured dozens of others. And what he said in his like little manifesto was he was trying to prevent the invasion Of this country. The thing that's fascinating about that. Is that is the exact language that Sam Bowers used. In trying to fire up the Klansmen. To tell them to basically kill these civil rights workers. Isn't that fascinating? You know before people hate. They fear. And when they fear they dehumanize. And make people into monsters. Or less than human in some way. And the reason for that. Is that they have permission then. To destroy people. Either figuratively or literally, in these cases, um, I've been—you know—people ask me about threats. Uh, I've been threatened dozens of times by Klansmen and others. One said he he was going to slit my throat. Another one that said he had pictures of me and knew where I lived. And 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 obviously, you you know, you don't want to be killed or hurt or anything like that. But it led to an unexpected gift, and that is the gift of living fearlessly. And living fearlessly is not about living without fear. It's about living beyond fear, right? Isn't that what we see from the people that were involved in the movement? I know quite a few people from the Bay Area came and were part of Freedom Summer and the movement in general. And so uh, college students and others. So, but living fearlessly is, is about living for something greater than ourselves, right? And that's what they were doing. They were living for something greater than themselves, uh, to date now, there have been 24 convictions in these cases, and it's a matter of faith with me, but I believe that God's hand's been involved in these cases. Um, but the most amazing thing I've witnessed has actually not been the convictions. It's been some of the racial reconciliation. Not too long after Sam Bowers was convicted, Bill Roy Pitts testified in a hearing. And when he got done, he walked to the back of the courtroom, and he ran into Mrs. Damer, And he apologized to Mrs. Damer and asked her to forgive him for killing her husband. And she forgave him and she began to cry and he began to cry. And is that really kind of what redemption is all about? We sometimes talk about that, trying to make things right, even when they've gone so terribly wrong in the past. Thanks so much. Anyway, that's, that's what I have. And uh talk about the book.
0: Yeah. Just absolutely amazing. I think um I was heartened to hear that you were no longer only covering the courts. That that's right. <laughs> um and moving from just not covering the courts but also doing the investigative reporting, but to your new yeah. role. I, I think just maybe a little bit about the center and how sure. that came just in terms of the work that you did and leading to that. Cause I think the challenge for me was how dedicated you were to still doing the courts and doing this investigative reporting mm-hmm. and that there wasn't an outlet for it. And now you've created an outlet yeah. think, for future
1: Yeah, well, we're, we're pretty excited. Uh, because as, and it's happening here too, newsrooms are shrinking and vanishing and all those things. And, and it's been even, um, Mississippi's been an even harder hit in that category. And so in fact I and Isaacs, who co-founded it with me, is right here in the audience and uh, there he is, standing back. <laughs> and uh yeah. Um but we we started with a vision of, you know, really just trying to make sure this investigative reporting is done and not just on cold cases. we're doing those too. Uh, We have a little justice squad. We're on the Millsaps College campus in Mississippi, if you know about it. We're just located there, and we have students that are part of the justice squad, and we're going to continue to work with even more colleges beyond Millsaps uh, to try to incorporate students as part of this because we want to raise up the next generation of investigative reporters. I think that's the other part that we want to make sure happens. But this past year, we've investigated prisons. Mm. We basically showed that the Mississippi's prisons were going to blow up and unfortunately they did. Wow! And now justice department's investigating, yeah. um, and, uh, and cited our reports essentially. Um, and then, uh, you know, we've reported on mental health. Uh, we've reported on, uh, education, public education funding. I'll give you an example on that one, which is kind of fascinating. I was curious and I couldn't find a number for it. How much African American schools have been underfunded in mm-hmm. Mississippi, like between Reconstruction and beginnings of the civil rights, you know, when desegregation actually began, which in Mississippi didn't happen until 1960. So that was the first desegregation took place. So we, we looked at that and I just wanted, I was just curious compared to white schools, compared to African-American schools in Mississippi, how much they were underfunded in modern dollars. Hmm. And that figure is 25 billion with a B. Wow. And you think about what's the effect of that when you have generations of of children and families who you know in their pictures, you know, one room, one room wooden schoolhouses with a wooden stove in the middle and holes in the wall. And um, at the same time the white students had the nice new red brick you know, buildings and, and, um, it's fascinating. It's just very interesting anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, a but long... that's what we're doing and, and it's going out to all the cool thing about it is all, all the major newspapers in Mississippi are running our stories. It's running in USA today. It's running in, uh, the guardian in London. It's running sometimes around the world. So, yeah.
0: What I appreciate about that. And if you can talk yeah. a little bit, sure. you know, the, when I look through the amount of actual research and investigation that you did yep. for these different cases, how does that translate in terms of the center? Because you, you talked about Billy Roy Pitts mm-hmm. and him going, how'd you get my number? Yeah. Right. But in a lot of the other things where you typically today would just go to the Internet and Google something.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Is there a shift in this? Like, what have you learned over the years, just in terms of just beating the pavement, talking to people, that type of engagement? Because Billy Roy right. Pitts wasn't the only person that you just
1: no no had to no. do extra work on. Well, I I think that I think it's I think it's easy. I'm not trying to beat anyone up, but I think it's easy to do what you're talking about is just Google it and assume that that contains all the answers. But so many of the answers. That i came up with in this book i mean we're not internet i mean you know that was an exception you know um most of them were in court old courthouses or you know or sources the the importance of sources i think Mm -hmm. is hopefully comes through that you develop sources who have access maybe to hidden files and then they leak you those files. a lot of times people think i 'm some kind of expert in the Freedom of information act, and i 'm like no i 'm better at developing sources and getting them to leak me the files right
0: well, like can you yeah. tell a little bit about the the research around the wrestling and no TV uh, that was
1: wild <laughs> that was funny. I mean, I was old school uh, so I went to interview Bobby Cherry He's one of the last living suspects in the Birmingham Church bombing case and you know, met him and his wife. He lived in Texas, which is where I grew up. Uh, I'm from the schizophrenic town of Texarkana. So anyway. And uh, so I knew where he lived and drove over, met him and his wife, took him out for barbecue because I guess that's what you take clansmen out for. I'm not sure. And uh, maybe in Texas, that's what you do anyway. But uh, so so he's like, I didn't have anything to do with that church bomb and left that sign chop a quarter to him because I had to get home and watch wrestling. <laughs> Pulled the sworn statement out said they were watching wrestling some other w- woman that was supposedly there and it's pretty it's pretty obvious to me i mean it was this is the rule in journalism this is the way we say it in the south even if your mama tells you she loves you <laughs> check it out <laughs> And so, and so I just got to back to the paper the next day and s- talked to Susan Garcia, our librarian and Said Susan, just check with the Birmingham news and see what's on TV that night. Because back in the sixties. If you're my age or older, you remember when the newspaper used to run like a little tiny box that had the entire television programming for the day. <laughs> and that's what she called up. So, and, and, you know, got it The, the back then when newspapers had libraries and so librarian from the news got it from there and then there wasn't any wrestling for him to be watching so his alibi was blown yeah
0: and that made a shift in the whole
1: yeah and the, I, and the fbi hadn't checked that out yet which i found just kind of incredible that seemed pretty basic to me yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah and and similarly with the 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 taxi cab and the telephone booth and some of these yeah things yeah, just- yeah
1: in the evers mega ever's case that's kind of fascinating that was kind of a clue hidden in the, in the open which was about which was that's always fascinating, too, you know, as a reporter, good advice or, or any, whatever you do. Read, sometimes the best thing to do is read the things that are out there already in public view because a lot of times people kind of gloss over them or read them quickly or make quick assessments instead of really diving down into it. And what I found out. The presumption had always been that that Byron D. LeBeckwith was was this obsessed assassin and he had Megarevers on the mind and he was going to go kill him. And what I basically not just found out, I think pretty much proved is that Byron D. LeBeckwith was was essentially carrying out orders because he had the name of Megarevers wrong, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: had the wrong name. And it was in the transcript the whole time but people had just failed to notice that that's what the cab driver said. He said, actually, he said, Megger Evans. So that sent me to archives. I love archives. I'm probably a weirdo anyway, (laughs) a weird geek, geeky guy, but I love archives. And so I went in and looked up, I asked for the, I ended up getting the telephone directory and what they call, crisscross directory or city directory where you can actually see where certain people and basically figured out that his buddy appeared to have been involved uh, who swore him into the clan was appeared to have been involved with that as well. So fascinating. Yeah.
0: So fascinating. And I have uh, and you have cards, if you would like to submit questions, I have one here sure. from the audience. If you set 1964 as a zero on a zero to 10 scale in civil rights progress, What would the score be today?
1: Wow, that's a great question. Well, I like to think we've made some progress. You know, I I mean, certainly if you're thinking about Mississippi, you would say we've made progress. I mean, in 64, there were only, there's just a, what, three or four percent of African Americans in the entire state of Mississippi could actually vote, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which is staggering, right? And today, Mississippi has more black elected officials and I think almost any other state. Wow. So, I mean, that's progress, but obviously I think what all of us would agree that, um, that, uh, political progress, we might call it has not necessarily translated into economic mm. progress. Mm-hmm. And there've been a lot of, for, and it also seems like with regard to race in this nation for every step or two that we take forward, we seem to take a couple of steps back. And certainly, over the past five years, I think you would agree with that that we're witnessing the rise in white nationalism and uh, white white supremacy as well,
0: so with that, one of the things that i you know reading about the sovereignty commission and mm-hmm. all that you were discovering, when we think about systems change right, right. and what kind of progress we're making there as you were yeah. uncovering or finding out about senators and committees yeah. and police and sheriffs. What do you think, where do you think we are now compared to that and, and how unner- unnerving was it to see how deep that went?
1: Well, that was, it was shocking to me. I um, mean, the other shocking part to me, uh, which I guess I need to add it to, to my talk, uh, is, uh, is discovering my own newspaper was a part of that, part of that problem. Right. And I ended up writing a story about, about, I was like, we have to do a story on ourselves. Right. And so, and so they let me.
0: Did they, I know you also asked them to do an apology. Did that?
1: Yeah, they wouldn't let me do it. (laughs) I I mean, I wasn't going to write it. It would have been somebody in the editorial department would have written it, but that was my suggestion that someone that we write an editorial and apologize for what we did. I still think it was the right decision, but I think my decision was the correct decision. I think their decision was the wrong decision.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and
1: they weren't willing to do that.
0: And so, with as we look at things today,
1: we should you, apologize. You
0: know. Do Do you think that the likes of a sovereignty commission could exist, do exist even in the plain Church? sight today?
1: Well, I think uh, I don't know if it'd be in plain sight. You know <laughs> what I mean? Uh, but um, certainly that you. Anytime there's power try, kind of amassed, and that's kind of what the Sovereignty Commission was, yeah, it was not just the governor, it was all the state leaders, it was all the significant state leaders were involved in this organization. So it kind of became their tool to be able to they gave it judicial powers, they gave it law enforcement powers, they gave it executive powers. It was basically unconstitutional from the get-go, in my opinion, but, but nonetheless, it operated and you know they could go subpoena records from anybody that they wanted and you know all this kind of thing it, and i think anytime you start to see power amassing you, you, we need to be very careful i think that's always a that's always a big tip off hmm. anytime you see either individuals or governments or whatever hmm. or a combination of those things kind of power beginning to amass and making that power bigger and bigger and bigger yeah. You better be careful. That's a, that's a, that's a real tip off. Yeah,
0: And on the other side where some of the activists and civil rights folks wanted to keep those
1: um, papers concealed because they were worried about. They were about privacy. There were some mm-hmm. privacy issues. And there how was it some would impact. Them. Yeah. And most of the civil rights people that I talked to that were a part of that were like, let them publish it. I mean, it's a, it's like a badge of honor, you know. But I think there were there were one or two, and actually, the one dropped out, so it was actually only one person
0: mm-hmm. in the end mm-hmm. who
1: actually stood, you know, didn't want them all released. But eventually, it all worked out. They kind of created a system by where people got notified, and then they were made public. Eventually, most of it, the vast majority of it's public. It's actually online now. People, if you're so inclined, you want to go look at the Sovereign Mission stuff. Some of it is redacted. I've got the unredacted one.
0: (laughs) You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. One of the things that I thought about as I read through this, and you talked about the center, the the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting, doing yep. some work around mental health and mental issues. Yes. Do you think as you went through this work and through the committee, the commission, um, Sovereignty Commission's work and through yeah. your interviews, do you think some of these people were suffering with mental illness?
1: You wonder. Yeah, you wonder, you know, <laughs> you know, there are even people today I sometimes wonder about <laughs> positions of power. We won't name any names, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I think you wonder about that sometimes, you know, that, that uh, if, um, you know, people who take take on. Take on you know, like some of what they did. I mean Beckwith, you know, I think probably was, has yeah, some from some some kind of mental illness.
0: And for instance, Bobby Bob Cherry.
1: Yeah, Bobby Cherry. Yeah, yeah, with the with the Birmingham church bombing. Yeah, I, probably so. What was interesting about him was, you know, they found him not competent to stand trial, and he was like lethargic and you know wouldn't respond and they he, i mean basically they're, they're they 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 were not he wasn't going to be tried because of these mental health issues supposedly and then when they found that he left where he was talking to the counselor he was bouncing around <laughs> and, <laughs> you know and he could recall all these things that you know he supposedly couldn't recall when he was talking to the you know to the the, the mental health therapist so yeah. uh, yeah, they figured out he was crazy, all right. Crazy as a fox, you know.
0: So, yeah. yeah. Well, it, th- as you talk about, and you mentioned earlier, like the writing nonfiction, because yeah, nonfiction, you know, they say truth is stranger than fiction it often. Is. and um, I thought about um, the, the interview when they're asking uh, if the, the police officer or the FBI agent knew about Scarpa right but oh, they yeah, use that's the name wild. like
1: that's wild, so you,
0: can you say a little more about that oh,
1: that's such a wild case um, well there was a guy named gregory scarpa and and so the fbi he was an fbi informant believed to have killed about 13 or 14 people this is not a nice guy mobster and from new york city and essentially they sent him down i mean that's what the fbi documents show they sent him down uh, to basically beat a confession out of a Klansman in the Damer case, it's true. It's just true. I mean, obviously, it's a violation of civil <laughs> rights and everything else. I'm not defending a behavior at all. In fact, I'd, I would condemn that. That's, uh, but it's, but that is one of the things they did, and it unfortunately kind of got um, people got it. He he and some others got it confused with the Mississippi Burning case. So it wasn't the Mississippi Burning case. It was the Damer case, actually. They Basically, uh, what happened was they bought a television from this Klansman and got his help loading it into the car. And they shoved him in the car and took him out and pistol whipped him and uh, got a confession out of him. As well as the names of other people involved in the killing. Um,
0: Another question from the audience. In terms of racial equity, what advice do you have for young people today that want to live in a world free of
1: hate and bigotry?
0: How should they facilitate civil discourse with the older folk who are set in their ways?
1: That's a great question. Um, I think I talked about part of that in my speech that this, I think, like I said, before people hate, they fear. And what does fear usually indicate is a lack of knowledge. A lot of times people don't know, or they're not fully informed or they're just fearful. Um, And when people are fearful, then they tend to, um, Hate can develop um, and or just and then politicians, I think, kind of prey into that as well. They use fearful, you know, they use the politics of fear because fear is a pretty powerful motivator.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You, you get people to be afraid mm-hmm. and therefore they may, you know, do some things. So I think that's what you I think civil discourse is the best advice of all to begin to have a conversation with each of us. You know, no matter who people support, be able to sit down with them. You know, and at least hear what they're, you know, what they're doing, where they're going from. Great. Yep.
0: Next question. Top four or five investigative journalists across all media.
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh, you're putting me on the spot. there. And my buddies will be upset if I don't pick them. Um, Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, Yeah. I think it's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good investigative reporters, um, I don't know if I can reduce it down to just four or five. And I work with T. Christian Miller. He's an excellent investigative reporter. He's a ProPublica now. A uh, bunch of really talented investigative reporters with ProPublica. Um, yeah, Jim Neff, that was my professor at Ohio State, is a tremendous investigative reporter. And he's heading the investigative team at um, the Philadelphia Inquirer. And then two of the reporters that are working for him that I, that I just adore uh, – is Barbara Laker and Wendy Rutterman, and they were the ones that did the expose on the cops and uh, were basically, it's hard to believe, but they actually were stealing from these convenient, convenience stores that were being running, run by immigrants. They were essentially going in there. This sounds horrible. It's true. They had proof of it. They were actually going in there and raiding them and then stealing from them and were... were not and you're know, basically knocking the surveillance cameras down so it wouldn't be caught but apparently one of the owners had a backup surveillance camera mm. there's literally a picture of the <laughs> oh, police no. officers taking the camera down mm. so um i mean just great work and they went her for that i mean obviously some of the me too reporting has been excellent um I just a lot of you know and sean mcintosh who used to be my boss is now heading up the investigative team and uh and uh, at the Atlanta paper, uh, just there are a lot of really good investigative reporters around. I mean, that's there's a lot of good investigative reporting. And, and if you're interested in that, there's an organization called Investigative Reporters and Editors. And we meet every year. And I think this year it's in, in uh, near D.C. But it's in Maryland. We're in, Wayne.
0: Well, piggybacking on that, someone hey, asked, um, please talk about the sinners. Partnership with ProPublica, yeah, what was the series of reports about um and what happened as a result of your investigations?
1: yeah, well, we investigate prisons, we started investigating prisons January of last year, and as a result of our our reporting, the Justice Department is now investigating four prisons in Mississippi wow, yeah,
0: well, I mean that for, actually
1: for violence and for conditions, like mm. both, not just conditions. Mm. But violence and for conditions. There have been sixteen violent deaths. No, at, well, both. Mm-hmm. We reported mainly on the state-run ones because it, a lot of times those they avoid being reported on. I'll give some quick examples. Um, Mississippi came out from under a federal court order mm-hmm. of its prisons from back in the seventies in two thousand eleven, <laughs> and since then the prisons have essentially deteriorated. And the and the funding has been whack more than two hundred million over the past uh six years. Mm. And so we reported on all this. There have been sixteen violent deaths at parchment since April. Uh the conditions are, for example, in two thousand twelve when the health department came in and inspected, they um there were no cells without lights or power. Today there are over three hundred. Wow. So they're literally inmates sitting in darkness. I interviewed one who just got out, and he said he basically he was. They didn't fix it for a whole year for him. So it's not like they're coming. It's not like these are out and they're you know fixing it next week. They're not fixing it. I mean that's essentially what's happening, and they literally have rain pouring into the prison, literally wow. pouring in. I'm not. I'm not. I don't mean leak. I don't mean like slight leaks, like right. you might have a slight leak in your roof. I mean like. Literally, inmates have posted videos of this, like Mm -hmm. literally rain pouring into their cells and where they live. And, you know, it'll be like that deep in water.
0: Wow. Well, I mean, that, this next question asked about Jim Crow, but, but, your conversation and the points you made just now make me think about Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow yeah. and this idea of prisons really being right. this system of segregation and um, well, look continuing at slavery, of, right? Well,
1: look at, look at Parchment. I mean, um, and David, David Shinsky did a book called Wor- uh, Worse Than Slavery, mm. which was the, the history of Parchment, and it essentially began as a plantation. Right. And, and, and uh, inmates were essentially the slave labor. And so they would work on what they call the sun up to sundown gang, picking cotton. And they not only worked on the plantation that was Parchman, uh, but they also worked for others. And the um, I think within early on within a two year period, the uh, Parchman prison contributed the modern f- the equivalent of five million dollars to the state budget. So it was a serious moneymaker. Even though it was a state prison, it was making – it was a profit-making operation. So, right. yeah.
0: Right. The, yeah. the industrial prison complex.
1: Uh, yeah. what, what I'm saying is it, it, it just – that's the history of that place. Mm-hmm. A yeah. question.
0: Building on that, thinking about Vernon Dahmer and this idea of Jim Crow and segregation and the fact that mm-hmm. his grandfather had been white –
1: yeah his father was white father was white yeah. and
0: passing
1: yeah. for black I know isn't that fascinating you know, and a fascinating kind of story but but i you know
0: trying to wrap my head around that fact that an unwed white mother in some exactly. way was the equivalent so in these kind of boxes that we
1: yeah use. it's weird you know real strange i like she the the guy just left her the guy that impregnated her just took off German immigrant, and he just took off and um and so she was left unwed and then she married um uh, married a, uh, an African American man but the first child that she had was actually white but he grew up grew up black which is kind of fascinating. And
0: yeah. so the property that they owned they came to own
1: it through a slave uh, basically basically slaveholder and he essentially gave it to his children who happened to be offspring through uh, through uh African Americans so it was very fascinating it's a very fascinating what if you go to that community even today the the shades of melanin i mean are, are across the board i know i know i think the new orleans paper times picking you did a did one you know it's been a while but they did a whole series on race and it would be like who's black and who's white right and you i mean these pictures you would you might <laughs> might presume black but they're white or you might presume they're white but they're black is you know so it's very fascinating very i funny.
0: thought it was interesting that you talked about as well as um some of the the Klansmen, like light skin, high yellow, like
1: these are they not language Mr. that I had
0: not really thought. I thought generally folks saw one color in terms of black
1: people. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, they, 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 that was kind of what Byron D. LeBeckwith talked about, talked to me, you know, about Megger Evers. He's not, he, he's a mongrel. So wow. that was the word he, and God hates mongrels. That's what he told me. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So.
0: Well, this next question, with the success of African-American and Mississippi politics, do you worry that Jim Crow laws could come back? Political success in the 1800s triggered the bad policies.
1: Well, I think you've seen historically in this country, there's been, with with whatever African-American progress there's been, there has in turn seemed to follow white backlash of some Mm. sort. And so when the the African-Americans returned home, well, let's talk about Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. For instance, you had Reconstruction in places like Mississippi. You had large numbers of African-Americans who were able to vote, uh, able to hold office. Um, and what happened in reaction to that was tremendous violence. The clan, the Klan basically and other organizations like them essentially killed, you know, lots of people. Mm-hmm. And... um and then you also had kind of corruption as well. They would stuff the ballot boxes. They would, you know, kill people who African-Americans who tried to vote. And then in 1890, they passed Mississippi passed its constitution, which, of course, inspired all those other southern constitutions, which set up poll taxes, um, quizzes, you know, things like that to keep. Like how many you've probably heard this one? How many bubbles in a bar of soap, you know? <laughs> those kind of questions that don't really have answers. Uh to keep people, keep African Americans from voting. So yeah, that that so what I'm trying to say is every time there's been kind of this breakthrough, uh War One, when the veterans came African Americans came home from the war, you had Red Summer. Mm. You know, and um all the uh, these killings and lynchings and even whole towns, Tulsa Tulsa's Greenwood, uh, Rosewood, uh, East St. Louis, all these places, essentially, you know, and lynchings, horrible numbers of lynchings and killings. Yeah.
0: Along those same lines, this question asks, should we be concerned about the rise of white um Trump rallies that are going gaining popularity?
1: Well, I think you have to be concerned about, you know, when when they when they tread into that area of white nationalism, white. And white supremacy for sure. And and it does seem to be what we're seeing right now is a white backlash, perhaps to Obama being, uh, Mm um, having served as president. That's my sense. In fact, I'll tell a little interesting story on this. Uh, one of the characters in my book, his name is Richard Baird is a white supremacist, but what's kind of interesting is he kind of became a source for me. And, um, well, he told me stuff, you know, like he told me stuff he shouldn't have been telling me, you know what I mean. <laughs> and uh, uh, the whole time, I mean, he's pretty—you can tell through my book—he's a, became a valuable source, even though you, you know he obviously didn't, you know, share the same mentality. Uh, but that's what you do as a reporter—you develop sources who help you out. But it, but Richard told me he was going to secretly vote for Obama because he knew if Obama was elected, there would be white backlash. Mm. I find that fascinating. I find that interesting. I find that interesting. Um, when you,
0: you talk about backlash and your own uh, a favorite po- poet of mine is um, Maya Angelou. And she has right. a poem called Life Doesn't Frighten Me at All. That's great. Um, and she talks about don't show me frogs and snakes and listen for my screams. You were faced with frogs and snakes along this journey. Yeah. Right. And yet mm-hmm. you talked about, um, beyond fear and living fearlessly. Right. What does that take? You know, you brought your wife and children along on that journey. Like,
1: I know it. I know it. I look back in a little differently than I did at the time. <laughs> I was, uh, I was young and obsessed. That's for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, all those things probably should have given me more pause than they did, but I was. I, you know, I kind of had my eyes on the prize, so to speak. And, you know, just like I think people in the movement were, I think they were, they had their eyes on the prize and and that's what you do. I think if you're, you know, I I guess I was always the little guy on the playground who got the crap beaten out of me (laughs) by the bullies. And, uh, I just kind of see what they do as very much like the bullies they are trying to get you to stop doing what you're doing. And, um. Yeah, I don't like bullies. <laughs>
0: um, along those lines, you, you worked with some amazing families oh, yeah. who, um, beyond fear, like had witnessed death and such horrible violence, and yet still were able to show compassion. Oh no! And so I I was sharing with you earlier just about Merle Evers and Ellie Damer and this idea of um, people thinking they were killing the movement by killing their husbands, exactly. And like the Maya Angelou poem, like they still there's like I rise, right? right, What you know, having worked with both of those women and similar folks, like what are some of the commonalities? What were the things that inspired and motivated you through this process?
1: Well, the families inspired me and motivated me. I mean, just with Merle Evers, just incredible courage and grace and uh, just her presence sometimes. I mean, just, and getting to know her and her family as, as I have so, so well, and the Damer family as well. It's just, uh, it, I always tell people, you know, yeah, I've gotten, I've won these journalism awards and it's nice, but the biggest reward I've gotten is getting to know these families. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, the Vernon Damer family, you talked about six of the sons serving. Yeah, And I thought about a Langston Hughes poem that says, I too sing America, right? Exactly.
1: And this idea what that they was, traveled That's what it was about, was about, you know, the soldiers returning home and, you know, the double, what they called the double V, mm-hmm. the double victory, right. Right, where they, they had fought and won the, the war overseas. Now they were coming home to fight, yeah. to win the second victory.
0: And and you helped Vernon Jr. in a lot of ways get a victory in this
1: Yeah. I, I I love him and the whole family to death. But yeah. I mean he told me you know, he was the oldest son of Vernon Damer. When he got home he he said that um he had to you know, he was suddenly the the person that was having to be responsible for his family, finding a place for them to live. I mean obviously he'd been burned. He Just everything, you know, the funeral arrangements and everything. And he told me he had never had time to cry. And then when the verdict came in and Sam Bowers was convicted, he just sat there and wept, just wept. Because yeah, he finally had time to cry. Un- unreal. I've been I've been so privileged to, and blessed to have witnessed so much of this, you know.
0: Yeah. and as you are with this next question as you're building and um the mississippi center for investigative reporting is doing mm-hmm. this work and you're building these relationships um how do you maintain journalistic independence from the wishes and biases of your funders but even from the people who ask you to investigate and maybe want you to find sure. something
1: well i mean i think you remain true to uh, this story you know what whatever the truth is and Uh, You see, obviously, facts, you know, and I think that's the unfortunate thing that's kind of happened in modern society is there's a there's this thought out there now that I I can have my facts and you can have yours. (laughs) And and that's just not true. I mean, there are such a thing as facts and and we need to remain. There needs to be such a thing as truth. There is. And and as long as people get to have their own facts there's no way we can come together really and have and really come to experience truth. I mean, you, if you have the same facts, people can draw different conclusions. I, I mean, that's fine, but, mm. but you can't have different facts.
0: Right.
1: I mean, facts for the facts. And I think that's the key for us as journalists that we want to make sure we remain true to those, the, the facts and, and, and what we do.
0: Yeah. You talk about facts and, you know, how do you think or why do you think so many of these um, anti-civil rights leaders were willing to talk to you and just give so much information?
1: (laughs) I I think they thought I was one of them. You know what I mean? I mean, you can tell. I'm like an albino. (laughs) One of the questions about my whiteness, apparently. Uh, But yeah, Beckwith asked me like a whole quiz about, you know, you saw that about. You know, where, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to church? Where do you, you know, all those kind of things. And I could refuse to answer, but I knew he'd love my answer. So, that's, that's
0: <laughs> but one time you, you were worried that you had said too much over the phone because it might be too ambiguous. When you were th- there were questions coming and there was a little bit.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. When that, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Though. Yeah. 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 I, did, I said too much. I, I'm trying to remember what that was. but yeah. was, I know one time I said too much. I was like. Ah, I
0: Without explanation. So.
1: Yeah. I shouldn't. I shouldn't have said that. Yeah.
0: Um, but in the same way, you were able to build trust with these families who would yeah. love people.
1: I, I think once it, and Merlie, Evers was, was very welcoming of me. And so was her whole family. And I think once that relationship had happened for lack of a better term, it gave me some credibility mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and um and then we you know um, you know proceeded from there so um but you know all these families I've gotten to see them, and the kind of cool thing about my my book tour and extended book tour is I get to see the families like I was mm-hmm. in Birmingham and I got to see Lisa McNair, who's the sister of Denise McNair. And, um, I'll be going to Seattle and I'll get to see Rita Schwerner Bender. She lives there with her husband and just people I've gotten to know along the way. It's, it's, I feel totally privileged and honored and humbled to have been able to make the journey.
0: Beyond the investigative reporting, there is so much rich history in here. And as you talk yeah. about um, the relationships that you had, it made me go and want to look up more things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and even with those relationships, like discovering that Murley's husband, second husband has passed and her,
1: oh, that was, her yeah. granddaughter. I loved and, him. yeah, And her granddaughter, too. Oh, it's awful. Yeah. So
0: navigating all of that, like how yeah. do you put all that into like context of these relationships.
1: Well, you talking about well, well, in terms of history, as a backup to talk about that for a minute. I mean, I think that is one thing that I think, at least, I hope this book can do. It's a very accessible book, so it's very, on one level, it's easy to read. On another level, it's very difficult and painful to read. But the thing I have heard almost universally from people who've read it is. Including people in the movement, is I never knew all this. So I find that fascinating, you know, because it's so often the civil rights movement gets reduced down to uh, Rosa Parks sat down, <laughs> Martin Luther King stood up, and African Americans got their rights. Mm-hmm. But what, for example, this is a simple, quick example, most people may or may not be aware of is that Rosa Parks was actually the fifth right. woman in 1955, who was arrested after she refused to give up her seat on a Birmingham, I mean, Montgomery bus. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I find those kind of things fascinating and, 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 certainly we credit Dr. King, but how many local people there were in, in, in here, I mean, here we are in a, in a, in a place that's, uh, certainly been very supportive of the movement over the years. Um, uh, I mean, there's just so many people, local people that were involved in the movement at so many different levels, uh, local people in Mississippi, local people here. Uh, so they deserve uh, they deserve our credit. I think Dr. King said at one point, one day the South and indeed the nation will realize who its true heroes are. And I think that's that day has come.
0: Um, I was looking earlier at something else that Dr. King in his book of sermons, Strength to Love, they talked about, he talks about Helen Keller and how she did all these amazing things. She took what somebody thought was negative and made it positive. And I think that's really what you've done for these families we talk about. Um, restorative justice restorative or justice. healing-centered right. engagement. Healing. But
1: right.
0: don't you think and can you share, like, in some ways how healing this is, not just for the families but for community?
1: I, I think so. I mean, that's what I've witnessed. I'll give a quick example of that. Nechoba County, I mean, is just – you guys probably know the name even. It's just – you are it's this incredibly recalcitrant county, you know, uh, that has just a history of, you know – this violence, et cetera, et cetera. What's interesting to me, you would think, well, what does it matter? Sometimes people will say, what does it matter if Edgar Ray Killen's convicted in that case for orchestrating those killings of the three young men? But what's interesting to me is, so he was convicted in that case. Two years later, uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi, which is where Neshoba is, um, elected its first African-American mayor. Wow, two thirds white. Wow, and elected its first African American mayor, and he continues to run unopposed. Wow. So I think that's kind of fascinating. This is not a place you would have ever expected that, but it almost makes me believe that because they were willing to take these kind of black better term, steps of faith or whatever you want mm-hmm. to call it toward this restorative justice that it, that it did, it did happen for them. Yeah.
0: And even for the families like I think about um Tom who watched the video with you and helped point yeah, out. Yeah, yeah,
1: Tom Cherry, the Bobby Cherry's son, yeah.
0: Do you think in some ways that process is healing for him and his and Tom yeah, yeah. and Bob Cherry's granddaughter who came forward? Yeah,
1: I think so. And and the other thing is like with the book coming out it has been kinda of fascinating has been some of the conversations after that, you know, I'll I'll talk and then people will a lot of times they just want to make comments and that, that's fine with me, but they kind of shared their experiences. African-Americans have shared their experiences, but also, you know, white Southerners who say things like I had someone in Texas say this, my grandfather, we found his hood. Mm. I, you know, I, I adored my grandfather and yet I found this out about him and I'm trying to reconcile these things. Mm. I mean, that's kind of interesting. I, I mean, so I think there's a lot of burden um, of, you know, of, of others as well, that maybe they need to, I think it's a great, at least I hope the book is a conversation, begins a conversation for, for African-Americans, for whites, for whomever, um, you know, really it's about our history. If we don't know our history, we'll, we're starting to repeat it. That's for sure.
0: We've now reached the point in uh, our program all right, where there's time for, one question. All right. And and I think, you know, much similar to the question you got asked after some of this started to happen. Right. Yeah, yeah. People started yeah, exactly. to think like you're the guy. Yeah, exactly. Right? You know, in this new role with Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting, what is next? Do you continue to look at unsolved cases in the civil rights movement? Do you build out more? Like what will you do with the center to keep advancing?
1: Well, I think one of our focuses is gonna be um, injustices that we see and, and need to be dealt with or reforms that need to happen in Mississippi things along those lines because we want to be something that can help for lack of a better term help bring positive change to a state that desperately needs it and so yeah so we hope to do that and uh, and we've already started with the prisons uh, and we're going to continue to do it we're, for example right now we're working on a project on juvenile sentencing there are a lot of juveniles in Mississippi that were sentenced to life without parole, despite the fact that U.S. Supreme Court ruled that that should be rare. And so we're taking a look at that, a deeper look at that. And if you happen to, if anyone here happens to know any people that want to contribute to our <laughs> our center, uh, it is deductible. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but we're we're trying to to build it out and hopefully be a model for. Other centers elsewhere as well.
0: Let's give a huge thank you to Jerry Mitchell.
1: Thank you you very much. Thank you, sir.
0: Author of Race Against Time. I'm Cheryl Davis, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Yay! Thank you so much. Thank you.